Hello, this is William Fink of Christagenia.org, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. This program is being pre-recorded for Friday, September 6th, 2019. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This evening, I am going to present and comment on a paper which was first published by Clifton Emmerheiser in September of 2006, and it was titled, Spiritual Sperm. In my opinion, one important aspect of our New Testament commentaries here at Christogenia is a con- constant endeavor to illustrate the differences of biblical Christianity, as it is evident in both the writings of the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles, with the interpretations of Scripture, which were accepted and institutionalized after Christianity had emerged from persecution in the 4th century, as a Roman government-approved church began to take form. To a great degree, these interpretations are still found throughout the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox, as well as all of the Protestant churches. While I am only offering a hypothesis, it is very li- it is very likely that these differences resulted because Christianity was persecuted by Jews for several centuries and by the Romans, often at the instigation of the Jews, at the same time that it was being infiltrated by Judaizers, as it is evident throughout the New Testament epistles and the Acts of the Apostles that Judaizers were going to and were making every attempt to infiltrate and corrupt Christianity. During this period of persecution, the Judaizers sought to corrupt Christianity, and as Judaic thought gained more and more traction on a persecuted Christianity, there is an evident transition which occurred within the first century of the dissemination of the Christian gospel. The spread of the gospel began as a message to the scattered twelve tribes of Israel and ended by adopting what we may call replacement theology, which is the misguided concept that somehow mere Gentiles, people of other nations and races, had replaced the actual children of Israel as the object of the promises of God. This happened during a murky period of Christian history from about 90 or 100 AD to about 160 AD when we see the writings of Justin Martyr. The apostles, as well as the prophets, had taught that the twelve tribes of Israel, which were scattered abroad, and had already become many nations, were being called to Christ. 
They were the ecclesia, the called ones. But the Judaic form of Christianity, which took root in Palestine and in Alexandria, and which ultimately became dominant, had taught that anyone who was baptized and believed in Jesus somehow became one of the children of a new Israel, which was the Ecclesia, and later the church. That word Ecclesia means the called ones, from calling those who were called. It was used in Greece, especially in Athens, to denote the class of citizens who had a right, because they were men who owned land, to participate in the political process and in making decisions in the democracy of Athens. So they were the ones called to the assembly. This word church actually comes from a German word, Kirke, K-I-R-K-E. I believe it would be pronounced Kirke. And that comes from the Greek word, from an elision of the Greek word Kuriakos. Kuriakos means of the Lord. It's the genitive form of curious or Lord. So curious or in the genitive form Kuriakos gives us the word church ultimately, which is not equivalent to the word ecclesia. Even though we could make a mental connection, the definitions are not the same. This situation the advent of this replacement theology greatly benefited the Jews, who were then able to claim a special privilege of being the chosen, pretending to be the children of Israel, while at the same time denying Christ. At the same time, the Christians who actually descended from the 12 tribes scattered abroad, those original Christians who were the objects of apostolic evangelizing, they were ultimately reduced to perceiving themselves as second-class citizens within their own faith. Ever since the second century, the Jews have been able to position themselves into being perceived as a special class, even though they continue to deny Christ, and in spite of the fact that they are not even true Israelites, but rather they are Edomite bastards. Jewry has always been a criminal enterprise, and thus it was able to continue to this very day. To understand Justin Martyr, the first significant Christian writer following that murky period about which little is known, one must also understand that the Judean Christians had rejected Paul of Tarsus, which is evident in the Book of Acts and in the evidence that Justin seemed to not even know of Paul never having quoted his epistles or even mentioning him. But Justin did understand the dispute which is reflected in Acts chapter 21. 
And he mentions it in his dialogue with Trifo, as it was ongoing in his time. Here we shall cite that chapter in part, as Paul goes up to Jerusalem to see James, and we read from verse 18. And the day following, Paul went in with us unto James, and all the elders were present. And when he had saluted them, he declared particularly what things God had wrought among the nations by his ministry. I'll say nations rather than Gentiles. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord and said unto him, Thou seest, brother, how many thousands of Jews, or more popularly, or or, I'm sorry, more correctly, Judeans, I should say Judeans, how many thousands of Judeans there are which believe, and they are all zealous of the law, and they are informed of thee, meaning Paul, that thou teachest all the Judeans which are among the nations to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after the customs. So James is saying we have all these Christians in Judea, but not knowing the essence of the gospel very well, evidently, they clung to the the, the ritual aspects, to many of the ritual aspects and other customs of the law, which were done away with in Christ, because the priesthood which conducted those things is done away with in Christ. After Paul's arrest, he wrote the book of Hebrews, which I believe was written while he was still in jail in custody in Caesarea. He wrote the book of Hebrews as his defense, as his argument against those very things. But the later sect of Ebionite Christians in Judea had continued to completely reject Paul. While the apostles James and Peter reflected an understanding of the scattering of ancient Israelites as it related to the intended audiences of their epistles. In the epistles of Paul, there are far more explicit references elucidating the historical connections of their recipients, the Corinthians, the Galatians, the Romans, to the ancient Israelites, the Ephesians, the Colossians. But Justin evidently never learned these things, having learned his Christianity (coughs) from Judeans who rejected Paul, and as we see in Acts chapter 22 and Acts chapter 26, the Judeans also despised the notion that Christianity be spread abroad even to the scattered 12 tribes. Later, the Alexandrians, Clement, Origen, and those who learned from them, such as Eusebius and Pamphilius, were also oblivious to the historical implications of Paul's epistles. Paul, speaking to Judeans at the time of his arrest in the temple, describes to them his experience, in part, after his conversion, 
and a vision which he had from Christ. Where Luke wrote in Acts chapter 22, And he said unto me, Depart, for I will send thee far hence unto the nations. And they gave him audience unto this word. They listened to him up to this point. And then lifted up their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for it is not fit that he should live. To prove that Paul was speaking of nations descended from the Israelites, we must read his confession, his confession of the faith in Acts chapter 26, where he was speaking before Herod Agrippa II, and Luke wrote, that Paul said, and now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers. Unto which promise? Our 12 tribes, instantly serving God day and night, hope to come. The 12 tribes, the promises made by God unto our fathers, for which hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused of the Jews. The Jews, those Judeans who themselves had rejected Christ, were infuriated at the thought that Paul would take the Christian gospel abroad to the 12 tribes that were scattered in ancient times. All of this is important to understand. Because the replacement theology scheme, I'll call it, it is a scheme, is first evident in the writings of Justin Martyr, a pagan who was converted to Christianity in his native Samaria. And it is also evident, it was also evident early on in the schools of the Alexandrians who had also formerly been pagans and Gnostics, such as Clement of Alexandria and his students, such as Origen and Alexander of Jerusalem. Clement was a former Gnostic, and both Justin and Origen were former Platonists, followers of the philosophy of Plato. In their writings, they also exhibit the influence of an earlier Alexandrian, a Jew named Philo, who wrote at length seeking to syncretize Greek mythology and philosophy with the Hebrew scriptures. Simply because these men consider themselves to be Christians does not mean that they shed all of their Gnostic and Platonic ideas. <clears throat> the writings of these men and others like them who are now called Church Fathers had contributed significantly to the formations of the later doctrines of the Roman Church. But these church fathers themselves did not agree on many things, and none of them are actually followed by any of the historical churches, or at least followed completely, or followed 
to any great degree by any of the historical churches. Generally, and by their own admission, the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox churches have based their doctrines upon the writings of church fathers who lived in the 4th century and later, and they have ignored or have even officially condemned many of those earlier Christian writings. These men chose out what to accept and what to reject from the earlier church fathers, and the churches now refer to their formulations as the traditions which they revere. Along the way, many of Justin's writings were lost, while much of what is left is ignored. Clement's writings were the subject of early disputations. Some of Origen's writings were condemned, and Tertullian suffered an even worse fate, being branded by the church as a heretic. Irenaeus is one early Christian writer who is not openly condemned by the churches, but neither did they follow everything which he had professed. But one principle which they all have in common, and which was adopted from the Platonists and the Gnostics among them, is that words in Scripture have alternative meanings other than their plain literal meanings. They must maintain this principle in order to maintain their belief in replacement theology. So in the earliest teachings of these so-called church fathers, the concepts that a son is something other than a descendant, a father something other than an ancestor, and that seed is something ethereal rather than substantial, all had to prevail. And this was the basis for the Universalist Church. They also retained many other Platonic, Aristotelian, and Gnostic concepts and interpretations of Scripture, which the Catholic and Orthodox churches uphold to this very day. The Roman Catholic website, catholic.com, in an article titled, How Aristotle Won the West, makes the confession that the fathers of the church, especially Augustine, had been affected by Platonic ideas, the writings of the philosopher Plato. As a digression, Augustine of Hippo was born in the middle of the 4th century and was arguably the most influential of the so-called church fathers on the Roman church. Augustine was also a follower of Manichaeanism and Platonism, and his strange interpretations of the epistles of Paul had been a dominant factor in Roman Catholic theology. We may assert that perhaps Augustine was much closer to Manny and Plato than he ever was to Jesus. Manny is the Iranian philosopher, I guess we could call him that, Persian, perhaps, philosopher, who is responsible for this system of Manichaeism. It was a, even though dualism had dominated 
Persian religious thought for many centuries. This Mani had a revised form of this theology of dualism, which Augustine was an earlier follower of. I don't know much about Manichaeism, but it seems to have influenced more than one Christian theologian in early times. And Augustine was one of the more significant of them. We may assert that perhaps Augustine was much closer to Manny and Plato than he ever was to Jesus, and Plato would indeed have been one of those worldly philosophies which were despised and denounced by Paul of Tarsus. Augustine was a notable proponent of sacramental theology, upon which the priesthood depends for its pretense of legitimacy but it's not Christian. And Augustine also promoted the Jews to the status of a special people. So in turn, the developments of these false doctrines were also of great expedience to another universalist institution, which was the empire itself. And the use of the Jews by kings for the purpose of purposes of taxation, tax collecting, usury, and mercantilism. So once the empire accepted Christianity, two other pagan elements were incorporated, the temple, which became the church building, and the priest. For well over 300 years, Christendom had no priests. Neither Irenaeus, nor Justin, nor Origen, nor Clement, nor Tertullian ever describe a Christian priest or priesthood. The apostles never described one either, except that both the revelation of Jesus Christ and the apostle of Peter, the apostle Peter in his first epistle, considered the entire race of Israel to be a holy priesthood. In Christianity, every man is a king and priest over his own household. But the empire needed to control its newly accepted form of Christianity. And when it accepted the new creed, the concept of the Christian priest was introduced. And by that, Christianity was changed into something which could be controlled by the empire. The priests becoming government-approved interpreters and expounders of Scripture, naturally justified themselves while teaching a form of Christianity which also justified their rulers. That situation continues to this very day. Many nationalists today, whether they be Christian or pagan or something else, can understand the concept that governments seek to control religion and interpret it for themselves in order to control the people. <clears throat> but they fail to realize that this was also an ancient phenomenon dating all the way back to Sumer, Babylon, and Egypt. And that this phenomenon 
also seriously affected the doctrines and teachings of institutionalized Christianity as the church had developed under the auspices of the empire. Once this is understood, then it may be perceived how the institutions of government, which the church had also become, could manipulate interpretations and translations of scripture, and then eventually the manuscripts themselves in order to maintain their power, to maintain and perpetuate their power. That is what the scribes and Pharisees had done in first century Judea, and it is also what was done by medieval priests and monks. The King James Version has language in some of its translations, which was purposely crafted so as to uphold the authority of the Anglican Church as an institution ordained and approved by God, even in spite of the actual Greek texts of the Bible. So, kairotonio, the Greek verb, kairotonio, to extend the hand. Kairotonio became ordain rather than elect, which is what it means. Diaconus became both minister and deacon rather than servant. Presbyterus was sometimes left as presbyter rather than being properly translated as elder. Ethnos became Gentile rather than nation. Ecclesia became a church rather than an assembly. And Episcopus became a bishop when in Greek the word means overseer or supervisor. And in the New Testament, it was used synonymously with an elder who was chosen by the people to be their leader, <clears throat> elected and not ordained. The perceived meanings of these words and many others were purposely corrupted or misrepresented so as to uphold the authority of a government-approved and organized institution over the consciences of men. And that's the important part. The government can control men by force, but it can't control what men think unless it can control their religion. When in fact, the original Christian assemblies were only home Bible study groups organized around household or community elders and servants, ministers, servants who were chosen by the members of the community and who then administered to those groups. Many of our critics claim that Christian identity is just another offshoot of Protestantism against the Roman Church. But that is not true. 
Identity Christians should not have Protestant theologians for their fount of intellectual and spiritual nourishment, because Protestant theologians were also infected by the false doctrines of the Gnostics and the Platonists, in addition to the effects of 2,000 years of Jewish infiltration and subversion of European Christianity. One example I commonly use is that of Martin Luther, who, in his treatise on the Jews and their lies, had admitted being influenced by and having borrowed arguments from converso Jews, such as Nicholas of Lyra and Paul of Burgos. Rather, true identity Christians seek to pick up where the apostles of Christ had left off in the first century with their epistles and with the gospels and the law and the prophets, while dispensing of Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, Manny, Philo, and Gnosticism, and all of the worldly philosophies and doctrines of men, and especially those of Judaism. So here, we have an attempt by Clifton Emmeheiser to exhibit the folly of this concept that the Proponents of Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, and all the sects of Protestantism maintain to this very day, which is the idea that sperm can somehow be spiritual rather than being genetic and physical. As the term is used in our scriptures, sperm or seed comes only from the loins of a man and never from some vague notion or professed belief. So now we shall present and discuss Spiritual Sperm by Clifton Emmeheiser. And he begins, In all likelihood, you're wondering, why such a title? <laughs> and no doubt, your first impression is that you've never heard of such a harebrained expression, to which I must agree. But, believe it or not, a majority of people insist that such a thing exists. In fact, they will go to extraordinary lengths and through all kinds of verbal contortions to validate their hypothesis, yet in spite of their strenuous oral gymnastics, they will usually unwittingly disprove their very own argument. Clifton is right. The entire basis of replacement theology is that the promises to Abraham and the patriarchs concerning their seed, or sperma in Greek, sperm, were spiritual. So basically, anyone who professes a belief in Jesus is one of these spiritual sperms. On the other hand, they contradict themselves by imagining that the Jews are the so-called chosen people, so that by that contradiction, they deny even what they claim to believe. But the promises that Abraham would have seed, and that his seed would inherit the earth, includes the insistence by Yahweh God himself 
that the seed come from his own loins, from his bowels, from inside his body. For that reason, Yahweh went to the length of having a 90-year-old woman give birth to a child to express the importance of that aspect of the promise. That is the promise of the seed, and that is how Paul of Tarsus explained that the promises to Abraham were fulfilled in Romans chapter 4. Either Christians should not be Christians, or Jews are not the people of God. If we view these things honestly, there is no having it both ways. They can't have it both ways. But Clifton addresses this problem from another aspect. He says, the subject of this composition is about 1 John chapter 3, verse 9, and the scriptural setting in which it is written, especially verses 4 through 15. 1 John chapter 3, verse 9, in the King James Version, reads, Whosoever is born of God does not commit sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. We will let Clifton address this without elaborating, except to state that in John's mind it is clear that a man has his seed in him as soon as he is born, and not later, because he made some profession with his mouth. Clifton responds to this verse in John's epistle. To come to an understanding of this verse, one must first comprehend what born of God means, and it's not speaking of born again, as Nicodemus wrongly understood it. It is not some kind of mysterious spiritual birth, as many maintain. Yahshua himself indicated that one must be born both of water and the spirit, and Yahshua didn't mean water baptism. Neither did he mean some mysterious kind of spiritual birth. Christ was alluding to being born from above, or being born of the heavenly race. We do the same thing today when, upon the birth of a white child, we send announcement cards by mail to all of our relatives and friends, showing a stork in flight carrying a baby. The stork is symbolic of a bird that flies in the heavens, and thus the happy parents consider the child to be a gift from heaven, which it truly is. And this is exactly what Christ was alluding to. Never should a stork symbol be depicted as delivering a non-white child, for such a one is void of the Spirit. Therefore, 1 John 3.9 is not speaking of the false doctrine of being born again. In actuality, the Roman Catholic Church, and now all of the churches, follow the error of Nicodemus to this very day. So they have refused the correction of Christ. Around the same time, mid-2006, Clifton wrote another paper titled, Born Under Contract. And there he said the following in reference to John chapter 3, verse 3, that a man must be born from above to see the kingdom of heaven. 
You can check almost any Bible commentary, and it will confirm. Born from above is a correct rendering. It may also be rendered born from the beginning. <coughs> from the beginning, an alternative understanding of the Greek word anothen. Anothen literally means from above, but could figuratively mean from the beginning. It was Nicodemus only who didn't understand this, and the churches as a whole have taken the same position he did. While the churches do not go to the extent of saying that one must re-enter one's mother's womb, they take another erroneous position. Nominal churchianity takes the position, if a person, and he can be from any race, chooses Jesus Christ as his personal Savior and believes on him, he can enter the kingdom, and somehow this new candidate is regenerated or born again of the Spirit. Now, continuing with Clifton in reference to this passage and another group of heretics, this is the erroneous position held by all who deny two seed line based upon Genesis 3.15 to seed line, which is based upon Genesis 3.15. Some deny the seed of the serpent entirely, while others consider the seed of the woman to be literal and the seed of the serpent to be only spiritual. The two seeds of Genesis 3.15 are respectively Zerah in the Hebrew and Sperma, in the Greek of the Septuagint, and thus there could be no differentiation made between the two, either in the Hebrew or the Greek. If the seed of the serpent is spiritual, so also must the seed of the woman be spiritual. If the seed of the woman is literal, so also must the seed of the serpent be literal. Thus the reader should begin to grasp why I chose the title Spiritual Sperm for this paper. However ridiculous though it may seem, to differentiate between the two seeds in Genesis 3.15 is to add to Scripture what is not there, and no amount of hocus-pocus can change their mutual meaning whatsoever. Therefore, 1 John 3.9 is speaking exclusively of the people racially born from above. I must interject that the Bible records the creation by Yahweh of only one race, the Adamic race. And in Genesis chapters 4, where Cain went, found a wife, and built a city, 6, where we see the fallen angels, the Nephilim, seducing the daughters of men, and Genesis 15, in Genesis chapters 4, 6, and 15, and elsewhere, there is sufficient evidence of other people here on earth who were not a part of that race. We have, in Genesis chapter 15, another mention of the Rephaim, the giants. If you read Genesis chapter 6 carefully, the giants did not descend from the children of angels and men. 
Not at all. Genesis chapter 6 says that there were already giants in the earth. There were giants in the earth in those days. Genesis chapter 6 verse 4. And also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men. So that resulted in mighty men. But there were giants in the earth in those days before that happened. And they were the Nephilim, the fallen ones. There are people here who are not from Adam. Genesis chapter 15 also mentions several tribes who have no genealogy from the sons of Noah in Genesis chapter 10. And the Canaanites and these other tribes and the Kenites, who are the descendants of Cain, and the Rephaim, who are the result of these Nephilim giants, mingling with the, the daughters of man, all of these are mingled together, interracially mixed in the land of Canaan at the time of Abraham. Esau took his wives from them. So the Bible is clear that there are other races of people here on earth who were not a part of that race which Yahweh created in Genesis the race of Adam. So the only scriptural explanation is that they were born out of the rebellion of the fallen angels, the Nephilim who were in the earth in those days, the fallen ones, those of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for which Christ had told his adversaries, ye are from beneath, ye are of this world, and the fate of the goats, the goat nations. In his parable of the sheep and the goats is the same as the fate of the devil and his angels. The Apostle John and Christ in his gospel are describing two types of people, each having a distinct origin and destiny. Continuing with Clifton. To substantiate beyond all reasonable doubt that both of the seeds of Genesis 3.15 are literal, I will cite Paul at Romans chapter 16, verse 20, where Paul wrote, and he wrote this about 13 years before the destruction of Jerusalem at the hand of the Romans. And the God of peace shall crush Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Prince Yahshua Christ be with you. Clifton says, Paul was predicting that the Romans would shortly besiege and destroy Jerusalem, along with Herod's temple. And although he would not live long enough to see it accomplished, because Paul died probably about 62 or 63 AD, the Romans had given opportunity for any Christians to leave before the siege, and history shows they did so. The reader will better understand this by going to the account in Josephus at Wars, Josephus's Wars of the Judeans, Book 2, Paragraph 19, or perhaps that's really a sentence, 19. As the Roman general Cestius besieged Jerusalem, and then lifted the siege for no apparent reason. 
although he was very close to taking the city. After Cestius lifted the siege, the good noble people of the city fled, and Josephus records that in those same verses. I'm sorry, this is book nine, book two of wars, chapter 19, is what Clifton intends. He's being more specific a little later in, in his paragraph. So Josephus recorded that after Cestius lifted the siege, the good, the noble people of the city fled. Some time later, at least about two years, Titus then came and destroyed the city, just as Yahshua Christ had prophesied or predicted. In Matthew chapter 24 and in Mark chapter 13 and Luke 21. <clears throat> Excuse me. By and large, <clears throat> all that was left at Jerusalem were the bad fig variety of Jews, or the seed of the serpent, Edomites, who had descended in large part from Canaan, the Canaanites, had already been mingled with both the Rephaim and the Kenites and others, the descendants of Cain. Jeremiah had described the bad fig Jews in chapter 24, verse 2 of his prophecy as being so rotten that they could not be eaten. The term eaten has sexual connotations, as it did in the episode with Eve. Therefore, Jeremiah was resolutely declaring that the bad fig Jews were so race-mixed, one could not marry any of them and have children by them. And the Romans, who were of the seed of the woman, really trounced the hell out of those residing at Jerusalem, who were of the seed of the serpent. And it was a literal, physical crushing of a literal, physical people. Anyone today can read the account by Josephus of that crushing. Although there, were still, there still remains a remnant of the seed of the serpent to be crushed. Of course, we still have Jews with us today. Can there still be anyone so mentally lethargic that the witness of Josephus to continue the seed to designate the seed of the serpent at Genesis 3.15 as spiritual sperm. It should be, and I'm going to add this in in writing, with the witness of Josephus and the prophecy of Paul. And Paul was really only, when Paul wrote that in Romans chapter 16, verse 20, he was only understanding what Daniel the prophet had written of the Messiah and the people of the prince, Messiah the prince, coming to destroy the city in Daniel chapter 9, Paul understood that after the cutting off of the Messiah, that his people in the form of the Romans would go and destroy Jerusalem. And they did. Paul was right. Thirteen years later, that happened. 13 years after Paul wrote his epistle to the Romans. 
Can there still be anyone so mentally lethargic with the witness of Josephus and the prophecy of Paul to continue to designate the seed of the serpent at, at Genesis 3.15 as spiritual sperm? I would strongly suggest that all the one seed liners obtain a copy of Josephus and start a serious study of it. All of you one seed liners, actually they are anti-seed liners. They deny seed line at all. Sit up and take note. Both the Bible and history call you the liars that you really are. Hence, you should hide your face in shame and let your contradictory words be silenced. Let's read this passage in Paul again. And the God of peace shall crush Satan under your feet shortly. And then let's read Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Paul is making an analogy of Genesis 3.15 and applying it in the interaction which was going to occur between the Romans and the Jews in Jerusalem who exhibited themselves as Satan and whom Paul identifies again with Satan in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. To Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Satan was sitting in the temple of God pretending to be God. And he must have been referring to the Edomite high priests, the Sadducees, and those Pharisees who were in league with them, those who had killed Christ, and who were pretending they weren't truly Israelites. They were pretending to be God's people, sitting in his temple, so that they could pretend to be God themselves, because they certainly weren't following the scripture. Clifton continues, and none of that will be in my notes. It's just a digression. Here, Clifton was not addressing Judeo-Christians, although they hold the same view of Genesis 3.15. Instead, he was addressing men such as Ted Wyland, James Brueggemann, Pete Peters, and others who profess to be identity Christians, yet they refuse to correctly identify the enemies of Christ and of our white Adamic race. The argument is valid in regard to Judeo-Christians because these men share the same Judaized beliefs. Now Clifton continues where he is referring to the fact that the seed of the serpent was indeed physical as he has demonstrated by explaining Romans chapter 16, verse 20. Now that both our biblical and historical evidence stands on solid ground, maybe we could read 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 to 15 in its proper perspective. Let's read 1 John 3, especially verses 11 and 12. And Clifton only included verses 11 and 12 here. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother. And wherefore he slew him? Because his own works were evil and his brother's righteous. Raising Cain. 
Take special note here where verse 12 says, not as Cain, who was of that wicked one. It is important to consider the Greek, which the McReynolds English Interlinear Bible with the NA27 text of the Greek translates from the evil was, and that's an oversimplified translation. It should be mentioned that the Greek article is translated that rather than the, and is to, T-O-U, in the Greek. That's the genitive singular form of the article. It is not just simply evil, but the evil, or in other words, Satan. The construction is a substantive, and therefore interpreted as a noun. Clifton will explain that shortly. Where Christ said to Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. The Greek article is not there. Whereas at Revelation 12, verse 7, it is the Satan. Poneris, by itself, is an adjective, generally wicked or evil. With the article, as it is here in the genitive case, to poneru, it is a substantive, a word or group of words used as a noun. Now, if Adam was the natural father of Cain, as all the one seed liners insist, then the only conclusion that could be made under such a premise is that Adam was Satan. Then, inasmuch as Christ was in the image of Adam, it would in turn make Christ in the image and genetics of Satan. Can you see how dangerous this line of man-manipulated reasoning can be? I could tell from the text, even though not really from memory, that I probably had a great hand in writing that paragraph with Clifton. This is actually the position of the so-called no-Satan element of Christian identity, which Sheldon Emery and my friend Mark Downey had embraced. They actually believe that the flesh is Satan, which is a convoluted view of Scripture, to say the least. But not all anti-seedliners claiming to be identity Christians think that the flesh is Satan. Most think that all men have their origin in Yahweh and that they have a choice whether to be Christians or of Satan. That view is also quite convoluted. Now, Clifton addresses them. Most of the anti-seedliners use Genesis 4.1 to support their claim that Adam was Cain's father. They overlook the fact that Genesis 4.1 in our present Bibles is but a corrupt translation from a corrupt text found in both the Masoretic and Septuagint manuscripts. Only the Aramaic Targums furnish us with the true sense of the passage. The Revised Standard Version further confuses the issue by adding the words the help of. For anyone interested, the concerning the corruption of this passage, get a copy of my brochure or essay, The Problem with Genesis 4.1. And it can certainly be demonstrated that Genesis chapter 4 verse 1 is a corrupt verse, as Clifton's paper elucidates. Without Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, there is no other witness that Cain is the son of Adam, 
And there are many witnesses which prove that he is not. Many witnesses in scripture which prove that he is not. In that regard, Clifton continues. <coughs> it is quite apparent that not all of the story of Eve's seduction is portrayed in the early chapters of Genesis. As at 1 Timothy 2.14 we read, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Of course, I would prefer the rendering from the Christogenian New Testament. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman had been thoroughly beguiled or thoroughly deceived when the transgression occurred. Continuing with Clifton, the anti-seedliners are evidently ignorant of Yahweh's law of adultery. Adam was well aware that Eve had had an extramarital affair with Satan. And when Eve offered Adam to have sexual intercourse with her after that affair, and Adam consented, then Adam became as guilty as Eve. And while other interpretations may be conjectured, this is the least that we should perceive from the passage in Genesis chapter 3, where it says that Eve gave also to her husband Adam with her, and he did eat. So Clifton argues in that regard, Satan's and Eve's penalty according to the law is spelled out in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 22, as follows. If a man be found lying with a woman married to a husband, and they shall, then they shall both of them die, both the man that lay with the woman and the woman so shall thou put away evil from Israel. Clifton responds, Adam's sin then, if you can call it that, was not demanding justice in the face of all the facts. And then, after her seduction, accepting Eve as a whore, rather than putting her away or causing Eve to be stoned to death. Eve's situation is similar to that of Joseph's Mary, who mothered Joshua to Christ the Protoevangelion of James, an apocryphal or pseudepigraphal book, makes this exact illustration. And Clifton is borrowing it, but he's not citing it. He cited that work in many other of his papers on Two Seed Line. Eve's situation is similar to that of Joseph's Mary, who mothered Joshua to Christ, as Joseph had also had to contemplate putting Mary away, and Joseph was well aware that by law it required Mary also to be stoned to death, because she was a virgin and found pregnant, but not by her husband. But Joseph, after learning these circumstances, kept Mary as his wife and thus accepted the responsibility as being the legal father to her issue, although the Christ child was not his. Like Joseph becoming the legal father of Christ, Adam became the legal father of Cain, Eve's issue by Satan, and therefore Cain became Abel's legal brother. We should take note that there is no such term as half-brother, or sister anywhere in Greek or Hebrew in the Bible. 
If in Greek a distinction was made by secular writers, it would usually be brothers by the same father, implying different mothers, or likewise with the mother. Yet the singular term brother was commonly used of half-siblings also. Many are unaware that Mary's Joseph had the curse of Jeconiah on him. In Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 30, Yahweh pronounced a curse on this man. Thus says Yahweh, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not prosper in his days, for none of his male descendants shall prosper, sitting on the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. Clifton advises his readers at this point to check the Believer's Bible Commentary by William MacDonald on page 1011. Had Yahshua been the real son of Joseph, he would have come under this curse. Yet he had to be the legal son of Joseph in order to inherit the rights of the throne of David. The problem was solved by the miracle of the virgin birth. Yahshua was the legal heir to the throne through Joseph. He was the real son of David through Mary. The curse on Jeconiah did not fall on Mary or her child, since she did not descend from Jeconiah. By teaching against two seed line, the anti-seed liners are proclaiming to the sheep that they have no enemy. And wittingly or unwittingly, it's an inexcusable, damnable lie. As I stated before, the Bible and history literally screams it's a lie. Luke clearly tells us, recording the prophecy of Zechariah, that indeed we do have enemies, plural, not just one, as in Satan. Thus, Satan and his children, citing Luke chapter 1, verse 71. In Luke chapter 1, we read, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. There's no replacement theology in the Gospel of Luke. Or actually, there's none of that in any of the Gospels, or Epistles, or in Acts, or in the Revelation. None. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, which had been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers, not to replace their children, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham, that he would grant unto us that we, being delivered out of the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. In Micah chapter 4, in relation to a promise of salvation, the children of the captivity were told that the Lord shall redeem them from the hand of their enemies. This is a common theme in the prophets in relation to messianic prophecies. Speaking of the children of Israel, as they were addressed in the Song of Moses, in Deuteronomy chapter 32 we read, Rejoice, O ye nations, his people, 
There's a little with in there added in italics in the King James Version. We scratched it out. It doesn't belong. It's added by those translators. It doesn't belong. Rejoice, O ye nations, his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants, who is his servants, O Jacob, my servant, and will render vengeance to his adversaries and will be merciful unto his land and to his people. Luke, that passage in Luke should be cross-referenced to that passage in Deuteronomy and that passage in Micah and probably a half dozen other passages in the prophets. So this message of salvation from their enemies, which is found in both Testaments, is a message to a particular people and precludes the idea that somehow those enemies can become his people. Otherwise, his people would be swallowed by their enemies rather than being saved from them. But we have an assurance in the revelation, in the revelation of Jesus Christ. In chapter 12, and the earth helped the woman. And the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon cast out of his mouth. And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. The enemies will not swallow the children of Israel, represented by the woman with the twelve stars. Rather, the earth will help the woman by swallowing up her enemies. Now, under a subtitle, Clifton asks the question, Are the Jews a race? Of course the Jews are a race, even if they are a bastard race. They are not a race which Yahweh created, because Yahweh did not create any bastards. But they are a race in the sense that, like all bastards, they pass on the same corrupt genetic traits from generation to generation. So they can even denounce Judaism, but they are still Jews, as we often hear the phrase, atheist Jew, even from their own mouths. They will always be Jews. Brother Nathaniel, he claims to be a Christian. He's still a Jew. He's still a devil. He'll always be a devil. He's going to the lake of fire. Now Clifton turns to the lexicons. James Strong's exhaustive concordance of the Bible with its Hebrew, County, and Greek dictionaries is a great tool to aid Bible students to a better understanding. But with its often abbreviated and vague definitions of the various biblical words, it can lead the unwary scholar to some erroneous conclusions. Many regard Strong's as an ultimate authority, and that is a mistake. Actually, it's a huge mistake. For earlier, H.W.F. Jesenius, with his 1847 first edition of Jesenius's Hebrew County Lexicon to the Old Testament, 
allows us to detect many of Strong's errors. Yet neither is Jesenius an ultimate authority. Where Strong's will give one or two short paragraphs for a definition of the Hebrew word, Jesenius will devote several pages covering the same word. The same precaution must be used for all concordances and lexicons. As none of them are perfect, and they are riddled with the premises of nominal churchianity. In other words, the lexicons themselves are laced with Gnostic and Platonist concepts in many of their definitions, which do not belong. Nevertheless, these references are needed, but one must necessarily be prudent with their use. In addition to these aforementioned reference books, I recommend W.E. Vine's Expository Dictionary of New and Old Testament Words, Spiros Zodiac's The Complete Word Study Dictionary New Testament, Thayer's, Joseph Thayer's Greek-English Lexicon of the New Testament, Wilson's Old Testament Bible Studies, Old Testament Word Studies, I'm sorry. And as an option, the new Brown Driver Briggs Hebrew English Lexicon. If I'm not mistaken, they base that on Jesenius. If one makes the excuse that he cannot afford to invest in these reference books, then let him cancel his subscription to his TV guide. Of course, that allusion is a little bit archaic but this is Clifton, and disconnect his cable TV service, along with stopping all the Jew-inspired newspapers and magazines. And then one should, in most cases, be able to afford them, probably even with some money left over. Sadly, even many identity Christians that we know continue to spend their money on worldly entertainments, especially on sports and television, rather than invest in building their libraries and applying themselves to study. Clifton continues, I recently got a letter from a man on my prisoner mailing ministry, whom I will not name, and no, this wasn't me. In fact, this is the reason for this presentation. Upon being introduced to Two Seed Line, he was favorably impressed, that is, until a flaming, censorious, one-seed-line pastor, whom I will not name unless he gets obnoxious, influenced him against two-seed-line. And I don't want to knock Mark Downey, but I'm fairly certain Clifton was referring to Mark Downey, whom I count as a good friend, but who never really came to understand what we call two-seed-line right to the end. And we miss Mark. So Clifton continues. This prisoner sent me a one-page letter, along with a four-page write-up of how this pastor convinced him to revert back to one-seed teaching. Upon being wrongly influenced by this pastor, this prisoner then came to many erroneous conclusions brought on by his own inability to grasp the meanings in Strong's and causing several misjudgments. 
On his own, this prisoner goes through Strong's Greek number 1074, the word genea, or race, and reduces its meaning to a generation, an age. His faulty conclusion was that many of the Jews that dealt that Christ dealt with were true genetic Israelites, but were influenced by a spiritual Satan, and that number 1074 didn't have anything to do with race. This prisoner completely overlooked the fact that in his Strong's at 1074, the definition directs him to Strong's number 1084, genetos, or begotten, which is a synonym of 1074, and that is important. And it's not quite a synonym as far as I understand it, but we'll let Clifton, we'll give Clifton a pass on that one. Had this prisoner, actually Benetos, Genetos refers to what is born of a woman. Genea can mean birth, but not quite what is born of a woman, except in the sense of race as a a group of people descended from the same parents or, or from the same progenitors. Had this prisoner had Zodiac's New Testament dictionary, which he truly can't afford and has no access to, he would have discovered that Zodiac states, in part, at 1074, race or posterity, and under synonyms, Kind, family, generation, and lists number 1085, which is Genetos under those synonyms, and which I don't entirely agree with that. Had he had Vine's New Testament expository, he would have discovered that under generation. Vine states in part, origin, a lineage, or birth, see kind. Then under kind, which is 1085, genos. Genos and genea are very closely related words, and they are synonyms. He would have discovered that Vine makes reference to about 20 scriptural passages dealing with race. Had this prisoner had access to Thayer's lexicon, he would have discovered similar definitions for both of these words listed at these Strong's Greek numbers. At 1074, Genea, or race, Thayer states, in part, used especially of the Jewish race living at one and the same period. Thayer mistaking the New Testament Judeans as all being Jews. This remark by Thayer would not have been necessary had the so-called Jews of that period been true racial Israelites. And I don't know precisely what Clifton meant by that statement. Josephus, at Wars, Book 2, Chapter 8, Paragraph 2, testifies that, by and large, of the Pharisee, Sadducee, and Essene sects, only the Essenes were Judah by birth. Josephus was an Essene as a young man, and he had first-hand experience in that manner. While it is obvious that Clifton was mostly addressing the so-called anti-seedliners in this essay, 
They, and most Judaized Christians, frequently deny that the concept of race is found in Scripture, in New Testament Scripture, except in relation to the Jews. The word gerethos explicitly describes something born of a woman, and both genea and genos are defined by Liddell and Scott as meaning primarily race, stock, or family. I have also often said that on the few occasions where Ganea is used of a particular generation, it cannot be separated from its primary meaning of race, so it more fully means all of the members of a particular race alive at the same time. In Clifton's citation of Joseph Thea here, we see support for that assertion, where Thea wrote that the word was used, especially of the Jewish race living at one and the same period. And that is correct in some places in the New Testament, so long as we do not confuse the terms Jew and Israelite, as they are not the same, and Jews are not Israelites. Once it is realized that Genea and Genos refer to race and cannot be separated from that meaning in any context, the literal meaning of the word seed or sperma is the only meaning which applies throughout Scripture. Clifton now continues in that regard. Matthew chapter 12, verse 39, declares in part, Christ speaking, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. The word generation here, as it appears in the Greek, is 1074 Genea, and is speaking of a genetic race rather than spiritual sperm, as both W.E. Vine and Thayer attest, and to which Strong, Zodiates, and Vine link to number 1085. And 1085, which is genos, means race in the strictest sense. Not only were these Pharisees and Sadducees a genetic race, but an adulterous genetic race, or a mixed genetic group who had been unfaithful in their racial calling. That's why Christ said to them, and you shall die in your sins, at John chapter 8, verse 22. What then were the sins of these Jews? Their sins were the fact that they were a product of miscegenation, which could never be rectified. Now, there were a few pure genetic Israelite Judeans who had joined the Pharisee party, who don't fall into the category of adulterous generation, although they were very badly misled. The only way that a proper understanding of the New Testament can be achieved is to understand that the high priests, Sadducees, and many of the other people in Jerusalem were predominantly Edomites, and that the party of the Pharisees was comprised of both Israelite Judeans and Edomite Judeans, and that the Essenes, who are not mentioned in Scripture, 
were actual Israelites and racial separatists who, for that reason, had no political power, which is why they are not a factor in the New Testament. <clears throat> Once that is understood, we can see why Christ never engaged positively with the Sadducees, but he did often teach among the Pharisees and dine at their houses. But in reference to those who had openly opposed him, he told them that they were not his sheep and that they did not believe him because they were children of the devil. They were born from beneath. They were children of Cain. And in the several other ways that he indicated to them that they were not of the same race or origination that he was from. Christ never told his enemies that they were evil because they did not believe him. Rather, he told them that they did not believe him because they were evil, and that they did not believe him because they were not his people. In this, the organized churches also teach the exact contrary to the scriptures. Then they willfully ignore the fact that they are teaching the opposite of what Christ had taught by inverting the manner of his arguments, all because they have more love for the devil than they have for God. Clifton now concludes, It is a watchman's job to not only be vigilant in carrying out his duty, not slumbering or sleeping on the night watch, but also to sound the alarm when an enemy is approaching, when an enemy is approaching, I'm sorry. But for a watchman to cry, all is safe, when it isn't, is treason. And that is exactly what the spiritual sperm people are doing. They neglect to see that the seed of the promise is the actual children of Israel, and that the enemies of God the seed of the serpent, are the actual children of devils. They refuse to see that. So we read in Romans chapter 4, For the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed. Paul's not talking about spiritual replacements. He's talking about physical descendants. Or to his seed, Abraham's seed not the seed, as like any seed that chooses to believe, was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if they which are of the law be heirs, the faith is made void. Why? Because most of those people that continued to keep the law happened to be Edomites, and they continued to keep the law because they rejected Christ. For if they which are of the law be heirs, faith is made void, and the promise is made of no effect. Anybody could be an heir by keeping the law, but Paul says that they which are of the law are not heirs. Because the law works wrath, for the, where no law is, there is no transgression. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be by grace, 
to the end, the promise might be sure to all the seed, to all the seed, not to that only which is of the law, meaning only to those Israelite descendants who kept the law, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, which is what Abraham believed, not what we believe, what Abraham believed, who is the father of us all, as it is written, and this is what Abraham believed. That's why Paul is saying this. As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations, before whom he believed, even God, who quickens the dead and calls those things which be not, because those nations did not yet exist, as though they were, because God was sure that they would exist, that Abraham's seed would become many nations who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations. Now, this is the important part. According to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. Notice that Paul did not say, so shall be thy seed, as if many nations were to become Abraham's seed, if only they would believe in Jesus. Rather, Paul wrote, so shall thy seed be, because the promise was to Abraham's physical descendants, to those who would come from his loins, as it was spoken in Genesis chapter 15. And Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, One born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of Yahweh came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. Abraham could not choose his own heir. Yahweh insisted that Abraham's heir come from his own loins. Neither can a church choose Abraham's heir, as Yahweh had spoken in Genesis chapter 35. And God said unto him, Thy name is Jacob, and thy name shall not be called any more Jacob. But Israel shall be thy name, and he called his name Israel. And God said unto him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall be of thee, and kings shall come out of thy loins. So a nation and a company of nations and kings would all come out of the loins of Jacob. For which reason Paul had written in Romans chapter 4, according to that which was spoken, so shall be thy, so shall thy seed be. The salvation of Christ and the promises to Israel are according to that which was spoken in the Old Testament. And that excludes both the Jews and all those of any other race, because there is no such thing as spiritual sperm. Sometimes 
commentators try to get around this, those who argue against us try to get around this, by saying that Jesus is the heir. But that's a lie. Jesus is not the heir. They try to say that the promised seed was Jesus. But that's a lie. The promised seed was not Jesus. Paul said in Romans chapter 9, In Isaac shall thy seed be called. Paul said in Galatians chapter 3, And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs, plural, according to the promise. And both conditions must be true to be of Christ and to be of Abraham's seed. Hebrews chapter 6, wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of the promise, plural, so Christ can't be the heir exclusively, all the seed of Abraham through Jacob Israel must be heirs. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 9. By faith he sojourned in a land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs, plural, with him of the same promise. James chapter 2. Has God not chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom, which he had promised to them that love him? to those Israelites that love him. 1 Peter chapter 3. Likewise ye husbands, and I'll skip ahead a little, giving honor to the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life. So the concept of heir is not singular. The concept of those who would inherit the kingdom of God is plural. And the scripture shows that it was promised to Abraham according to that which was spoken. So shall thy seed be. As I said, either Europeans should not be Christians or Jews are not Israelites. Only one or the other can be true. Both conditions, both statements cannot be true. If Europeans should be Christians then Europeans must be the literal descendants of the seed of Abraham. And the Jews, they have to be imposters. Which is it? You could believe the Jews, or you could believe God. There's no such thing as spiritual sperm. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and the enemy of all Jews and all niggers and all Chinamen, and all squat monsters, and all of those of all those other races who are besieging the camp of the saints at this very moment. Praise Yahweh, and good night.